morning. Come back together. We are uh, continuing our study through the book of Romans. We are in chapter two. And last week we pressed hard on this notion of uh, the 13, 17-ish times where both Jesus and the Apostle Paul and Peter and John press upon us the significance that our actions are reflective and in some way or another will be judged. And I wanted that to sit just because there is this defense mode, right, that wants us to go to our justification in some way to protect us from the realities of uh, evidence in our sanctification. But uh, just to make sure that, um, you know, when you bring the record of the case, which is a Presbytery recognition of, of charges brought against me for heresy. I thought I should uh, at least reflect uh, one commentator's attempt to unpack both of these truths. Cranfield says this It is absolutely vital to the true understanding of these verses to recognize that the statement of verse 6 is not made in a legalistic sense, it is not an assertion of. Uh, acquittal according to deserts, and that it is not implied in verse 7 and in 10 that the people referred to earn eternal life. The Greek is not regarded as uh, uh, continuing, uh, sorry, constituting a claim upon God, but as an expression of faith and repentance. The good works no more earn salvation than does the evil work. The difference between them is the difference between evidence of openness to God's judgment and mercy and evidence of the persistence of a proud and stubborn self-righteousness. The instance on the necessity which is uh, here given is compared with and what is seen in passages like Matthew 7, 21 and 25 verses 31 and following. It is a challenging thing to have God's grace and mercy held to us in such a fashion that it examines even after confessing our need for Christ, our own propensities to hold on to the old self. And to find that in ever greater degrees, as God graciously reveals it, our stubbornness and selfishness was not miraculously evaporated when we were justified and the process of sanctification continues. This morning we're going to now take actually verses 1 through 11 together, unpacking what it means then for God to show no preference, no partiality. On, the, uh, on his uh, judgment, that his judgment is right and good, and regardless of political affiliation or denominational affiliation, uh, that his judgment is always in accordance with his kingdom and his law. So let's put the text in front of us, Romans chapter 2. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 11, but we'll be focusing on really 7 or 6 and 7 and following. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, 
you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and the forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the, the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek the glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first, and then also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would continue to encourage us by your might and your power, your glory and your grace. We pray, Lord, that as we reflect again on why you have right cause to act, right cause to judge, to remove that which is destroying your creation and your people from the inside out. We ask that we might rest in the sure knowledge of the verse we just read, that your patience is meant to give us opportunity to keep turning back to you, to repent, to unpack what it is to be your people. And Lord, whatever is said this morning that is not useful or true, may those words quickly be forgotten for the safety and glory of your people and the honor of your name and word. In Christ's name, amen. So as we reflect on this text this morning, given the uh, time and the lateness of the hour, I just want to start this way by saying, that most of us know that when studies are done about why non-Christians are not Christian or why Christian kids who grew up in the church have left the faith, one of the top three answers, and it'll vary as to whether it's one, two, or three, is the hypocrisy of Christians. Rightly or wrongly, discerning that one of the key challenges is that Christians are hypocritical. Now, that's not really all that mind-blowing because, of course, everyone is hypocritical. The challenge is, of course, uh, that as Christians, we desire to see through the light of the gospel how in ever greater degrees we might be less and less hypocritical this side of glory. The goal isn't zero hypocrisy, which is why it's often unhelpful for us to argue that we're not hypocrites or to simply embrace hypocrisy, uh, the, the, the critique without looking at in what ways we might find ourselves, by the grace of God, less prone to hypocrisy. If we walk through this text and the quotes on the front of the worship folder, they are meant to elicit the notion that we're always in danger of being hypocrites. 
that as a nation or as a people or even as a Christian group, we might advocate against all of the evils in one part of the world, all of the ways in which freedoms, perhaps, uh, or certainly incarceration, uh, is a problem of countries that we assume to be, by our own political notions, totalitarian states. And whether or not we intended to have so many people incarcerated by our uh, 1996 crime law, there seems to be some sort of fallout from that, that the numbers seem to indicate that, golly, a lot of people are in jail. And is that because suddenly from 1996 till today, people became more sinful? I don't know what that means. The spirit, the, the wind is blowing, right? It was a mic. <laughs> and my point is simply to acknowledge that all of us would say that, gosh, how did Germany get down the road that they got? And that painful quote from Pastor Niemöller that he didn't realize in the midst of changing laws, which seemed at some point reasonable. For Pete's sakes, who doesn't want a few socialists in jail? That seems to overall encourage the population and better uh, economic status. And yet it may have, in some ways, negative cumulative effect. And it is always the way in which the enemy seduces us along certain lines of our own interests, which we imagine are also the interests of those around us, that these things sneak up on us. And to imagine that any nation, any people, or any church are immune to the wiles of the evil one and the princes and principalities of this world which thrive on making people think they're free while they enslave them, that any of us would be less prone to those temptations, personally, denominationally, or as a nation. So I want to walk through real uh, verse 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 with you, reflecting on how Paul is pressing hard because he wants his people he wants the church not to be defeated in a recognition of the power and the aggressiveness of the enemy to seduce us into judging others while we do the same thing, rationalizing our use of worldly power as pragmatically necessary while condemning the same use in others. That Paul wants us all to find our identity and our power and our humility in the fact that when we do things in line with the world, no matter whether we act a certain way and call uh, ourselves uh, by a particular faith or denomination or decry any religion, that God will show no partiality, that he will judge according to the ethics he created the world with. And the reality that, as some have said, that the ethics of God are much like the things we understand to be a part of physics and other natural laws that one certainly cannot imagine that ignoring the powers and principalities means that their power is any less diminished. So verse 7, verse 7 tells us 
here as uh, my Bible flips several pages. Uh, to those who by patience and in doing well seek the glory and honor in immortality will receive eternal life. What's being suggested here by Paul, I think, is in line with what he says in Galatians. Those who embody the fruit of the Spirit. This is not a new route to self-justification. This is when one embodies the fruit of the Spirit, gentleness, patience, kindness. He's not limiting righteous action to simply patience in verse 7, but he's bringing in all of the nature of what surrounds patience, kindness, self-control, humility, the actions of Jesus in his ministry, the characteristics of what Paul advocates for in the fruit of the Spirit, that those who are, by seeking Christ-like character, by following the example of their big brother, delighting in what it means to be created in the image of God and in ever greater degrees reflecting the character and nature of the one that they bear the image of, that in so doing, they bring for themselves the assurance that yes, glorification, what Paul's going to talk about in Romans 8 as being what happens when the Lord returns and we receive a measure of glory that we can now not possibly imagine. As C.S. Lewis says, when we see ourselves in the glorified state, I'm paraphrasing here, we would be tempted to worship ourselves. That when you see yourselves perfectly glorified, that that would be a being of such light and such radiance that we would be somewhat rightly uh you know, given, given a measure of grace, that we would think, my gosh, that's divine. It is, it's, it is, because it's reflecting true divinity. And so Paul's saying here in verse 7 is that when we live a life pursuant to the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit, which of course are given to us as a gift, when we fight less and less against what the Holy Spirit is telling us to do, when we feel that fear and we're saying, if I act patient or gracious now, the person will run over me. I can't be gracious. I can't be kind. I must be pragmatic. I must defend myself. Every time we choose to do the fruit of the Spirit, we are in ever greater degrees reflecting the nature and the character of the one who is transforming us. And when we do so, that yes, Paul is saying that is moving towards, even if the world tells you you're a knucklehead who's been a doormat for everybody, that will be your greatest glory. When the world sees the truth of the matter, glory is what will be seen, not the false judgments of the world. Verse 8, wrath and fury. Now there's uh, an interesting quote here that I don't really have time to read, but it turns out that understanding both the internal and external realities of what Paul is saying in verse 8 uh, and uh, verse 9 is uh, agreed upon by St. Thomas Aquinas, Calvin, and Karl Barth. And so just saying that even people of diverse theological backgrounds can agree uh, on a passage in Romans is an indication that we can love one another in Christ. And that what we're talking about here, what Jesus is talking about as he inspires Paul through the Holy Spirit, is that wrath and fury is all we're left with. 
when we're left to our own devices. This morning, I was profoundly frustrated in my inability to remember everything that I had to bring. And so David and I go back to my house to go get a few more things that I had forgotten. And our wonderful dog, Oakley, who does have a bit of a barking problem, barked. And I used my voice that has the tendency to tell the entire world that it is about to receive all the wrath of heaven and hell combined. Zero restraint on my volume in a small house. That is me, unrestrained by the gospel. Hell has no fury like someone who threatens my kingdom, particularly if I'm in a bad mood and particularly a dog. Just imagine, as C.S. Lewis points out, what happens when the least problems I have, those points where my anger does break loose, where my self-condemnation or my condemnation of you goes unchecked, and I sit or I walk and I stress and I contemplate all of the ways in which I'm right and you are wrong, what is left in our heart and soul but fury and anger and wrath? And C.S. Lewis says that just imagine, that may be annoying over a lifespan of 80 years or so, but imagine if I went unchecked for eternity. How hateful I could possibly be. How vengeful and angry. How fearful and wrathful. We really don't need demons pointing us and poking us with sticks. We just need to be left alone with our own frustrations and fears and insecurities. And we will make a plenty good hell for ourselves and anyone who comes against us. And again, that great challenge is God saying, not my will be done in your life, but your will be done in your life. So yes, does God turn us loose to ourselves? Does he have to add anything to it? I don't imagine that he does. Just his absence, just the absence of any patience, any grace, any mercy is hell. And certainly not a place anybody else would want to be. Certainly not anywhere near me. Verse 9. Oh, that's chapter 7 of Corinthians. Verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Uh, there is not a more righteous way of sinning. Right? Summary of what Paul's saying. There's just not a more righteous way of sinning. You don't sin a little better as a Jew or sin a little worse as a pagan. We don't sin less profoundly ugly because we're a Christian than a pagan who does the exact same sin. There isn't gradations. God's grace doesn't make our sin less horrible. What it does is it covers our sin. And the terror and the horror is what if my sin isn't being covered by God and is laid bare for all to see? But we shouldn't, and Paul is pressing hard, that we not imagine that our sin is somehow a little less sinful because I've been baptized or a little less profoundly disturbed and perverted because I say I'm a Christian. There just is no biblical rationale for arguing that doing the same sin as another person as a Christian is somehow less obscene 
than doing that sin as a non-Christian. Verse 10. If I was truly Pentecostal, I would probably just start reading the various verses that the Holy Spirit is turning the pages to, and we might make the sermon better. I'll just start reading the verses that, that, that the Bible turns to. Um, it probably would be. All right, so uh, verse 10. But glory and honor and peace forevermore who does good first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Why? Well, because this side of glory, if we are a believer, when we're a believer, we have an understanding that the mercy and grace we extend to others is truly eternal in its value and worth. Not salvifically, but because it's like God, it will endure. Those things which are in line with God's character will not end when you die. They are continue on. Why? Because they're eternal. The fruit of the Spirit is eternal. It does not spoil. And therefore, imagine how much more delight and glory there is, whether or not one appreciates it or not at a given moment. But we can, as Christians, as uh, the first century Jews could have, when I do good, my stars, isn't it glorious? Because even if it's not appreciated, it's in line with who God is. Even if the full implications are not yet understood, it's still beautiful and powerful, and I can delight in it even now, and I can find shalom in it now, and it'll bring shalom through the presence of Christ for eternity. I can begin to imagine what those implications are of living in Christ-likeness even now. The power and profundity of it as image bearers, the glorification, the glory I reflect back, that we reflect back to God. We'll get to do that for eternity without wondering if we're doing it. Without some of the challenges of our mixed motives and brokenness, this side of glory. And yes, there is a reality that there are people who do not acknowledge Christ, who are doing things that if they could see the eternal glory would bring them greater joy, but because they deny Christ, they don't know the good they're doing. Because again, if I had to be in Christ to do a good thing, that's kind of getting me back to works righteousness. But if I acknowledge that it's actually the work of Christ sanctifying a deed, it can make anyone giving somebody a glass of cold water who is parched or a piece of bread who is starving. That inherently doing good by nature is good. Since this side of glory, none of our motives will be pure. It's the reality that the thing reflects the glory of God and his character that makes it eternal. And because doing good things doesn't justify me, I can acknowledge that even people I disagree with share common grace acts of doing good. The non-believer doesn't appreciate the goodness that they do. And because of the selfish heart, uh, those who fail to acknowledge the reality of Christ and his kingdom will not enjoy the benefits of the good things they have done because they could not acknowledge the author and finisher of all goodness itself. But it gives us a perspective of believers to recognize that the image of God may be marred in all of us, unacknowledged in many, 
but the power of goodness, of God's character to go forward, doesn't change. It's just some folks won't get to enjoy the richness of what they really did. They're blind to the impact of what they've done. Not just their evil, but in common grace, even their good. God does not show partiality. He acknowledges good where there is good. He will bring salvation and glory to all those who repent. And he will always protect his name. So a couple of questions to contemplate perhaps as we wrap up this morning. Do you live like God, not showing partiality? Where does partiality show up in your life? Is there grace even as there is discernment? Where do you show partiality? Particularly in the current environment where it seems harder and harder to hear one another. Just want to throw out to you. Now this is politically loaded. Nancy Pelosi is a confessing, worshiping Roman Catholic. Mike Pence is a professing evangelical. One might have real concerns about either one of those folks' positions on various social and political and moral issues. But as believers, do we find those places, and this is the second question, find five kingdom ethics folks you fear or disagree with share with you? Find five kingdom ethics that folks you fear or disagree with share with you. There are, they are there. Common grace says they're there. Whether it's within our intramural discussions as believers on very key and important issues. But what we know, right? What we know will send Nancy Pelosi into eternal judgment is not her position on abortion, but her position on Jesus. What will send Mike Pence to heaven or hell is not his position on immigrants, but his position relating to Jesus. What sends a socialist to hell is not their position on whether or not there should be more shared economics versus a capitalist who believes that they should be more individualistic in those things. That's not what sends us to hell. There are virtues in human constructs that touch on eternal values. Find five kingdom ethics folks you fear or disagree with share. Because the goal is to humanize them. Right? The goal of Paul's language here is to create a unified church in Rome. Not divided between Jew and Gentile. Not divided economically. Not divided 
uh, between whether or not you do or, or don't go to temples to eat food. Not divided, not divided, not divided, but united in Christ. And so Paul's argument here is not to make us feel bad about all of the ways in which we sin, but to give us again a fundamental understanding that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and stop trying to excuse your sin as slightly less sinful than my sin. But my God, thank you that you are not partial. I would have taken unfair pride in believing you liked me better because I had these views than you liked the person who had those views. I would have sinned if that was true because I would have taken pride in your preference of me. Thank God you are impartial. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. Thank you that we all start in your love and by common grace. Lord, it doesn't change what evil is, but it does remind us that apart from you, none of us are good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.